You're listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast, your number one source for discussions about the Vols and Lady Vols basketball programs. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Now, get ready for a new episode of Vol Basketball Fever. Hello, everyone, and welcome in to another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever podcast. I'm Nathaniel Rutherford, joined by a special guest this week. If you've been a longtime listener of the show here, or even remember my days back at Rocky Top Insider, you know who this is. He's been on the, the RTI podcast before. He was on here when we had the SEC podcast. It is Eric Haslam of Haslametrics to talk about uh, Tennessee, Tennessee basketball and their upcoming, you know, chances in the NCAA tournament, the SEC and the NCAA tournament, just kind of NCAA tournament stuff at large. So, Eric, thank you so much for coming on with me. Hey, thanks for having me again. It's great. Yeah, it's great to have you on. It's it's that time of year. It's I don't care what the the song says. I don't care what other people say. The most wonderful time of the year to me is March. So I am very excited for March Madness to be here. Uh, so again, thank you for coming on here. Before we get into it, again, thank all of you who are watching slash listening to this episode. Subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. We're available everywhere you get your podcasts. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, you name it, we're there. And subscribe to the YouTube channel if you're watching this. And give this video a like and share it. We'd appreciate it. And also go check out Eric's website at haslametrics.com. There'll be a link to it here in the description on the YouTube video and a link on the podcast description as well. Before we get into some of the topics and questions I had for you, Eric, you kind of described, I've referenced your, your stuff multiple times here on the show on a couple of the matchup breakdown videos I've done for Tennessee this season, you know, because I, I really like your work and like the analytics you do. And also you're a pretty approachable person on Twitter and actually will, you know, interact with people and, and answer questions and stuff. So I've always been very appreciative of that. But I guess for those who may not know, let our listeners know, you know, what Hasometrics is, what kind of differentiates it between some of the other analytical sites and kind of, you know, how, how long you've been doing and stuff too. Yeah. See, I was, I, you know, I was a huge fan of March Madness, fell in love with March Madness in the early nineties, back with that Loyola Marymount team with Hank Gathers and, and uh, Bo Kimball and all that. And I just, you know, right around 90, 91, right around there is when I just, like I said, fell in love with March Madness. First thing I would do every, every the day after Selection Sunday was run to the newspaper stand and get that uh, USA Today because that was the only way you could actually get those team capsules back then. You didn't, you didn't, you know, we didn't have all these ESPNs and Fox Sports and all this, all these other channels. You kind of had to rely on one or two stations unless you were watching something like on CBS, maybe NBC or might have a game or an ABC but it was, you know, it was just something that I just kind of had a passion for. And I was, I remember even back in the nineties trying to like break down the numbers, even before the, the age of the internet and really not doing all that well. But, you know, later on, all of a sudden we had all this information at in our fingertips and I had the background. I'm an engineer uh, by trade and I have a lot of, you know, a pretty big coding background. So I started tinkering with this about, I'd say about 10, 12 years ago, simple stuff, spreadsheets, Microsoft Access databases, things like that. And I found that I was kind of recreating the wheel and I kind of recreated the wheel based on like Dean Oliver's four factors. And, you know, after doing it that way, I kind of learned a little bit about statistics, taught myself, taught myself things about statistics that I didn't really had, had not learned in college. And then I kind of took a step back and I said, you know what, this is not the way I want to do that. I don't want to recreate someone else's wheel. I want to re- I want to create my own wheel. And so that's when I invented Haslametrics. And I said, well, if I was going to erase my memory, just start from scratch and do it my own way, how would I do it? And I really kind of decided to do things, you know, based on scoring and shooting situations. So you're thinking of, you know, where are you shooting from? Are you shooting from behind the three-point line, inside the three-point line, from what I call near proximity locations, dunks, tip-ins, alley-oops, things like that. Also, 
think of situational um, shot data. Like if you can get situations where a team gets an offensive rebound and a quick putback, that yields a higher percentage. If you get a quick steal and score quickly off that steal, that yields a higher percentage. I started kind of isolating all of these shot locations and all these situations down. And then I kind of built my model based on that. And, you know, in order to do that, I, I decided to use play-by-play data. Up until then, I don't think a lot of people were doing that. But the play-by-play data was really rich compared to the box score data. It allowed me to do a couple things. It really allowed me to differentiate between those mid-range twos and those up-close twos. So that's where I broke things down with near proximity and mid-range originally. And then the other thing, and, and anybody who knows me on Twitter has seen me go hashtag analytically final. I do that like crazy for whatever reason. People love that. It's, it's, you know, something that I, um, I took from, um, uh, what was it? Mike James, I think was his name, who, who created the algorithm to kind of determine when a game was going to be over. And I kind of tweaked it a little bit. Um, I thought he was a little too aggressive. I backed it off, made, made a little tweak there. And what happens is when I get to a point in a game where it's mathematically over or analytically final, I take everything after that point and I throw it on the trash heap because I want to see these teams when they're playing full strength. And, you know, um, it, all this stuff, if you have a 22-point lead with four minutes to go and all of a sudden the lead is eight at the end, that's not truly indicative of that team if they took their f- foot off the gas. So little things like that I built into my model. And right around the year 2014, I ended up creating the website, just had ratings at first, and then I kind of built onto it little by little. There was, um, you know, uh, doing the, the game projections, doing the automated team summaries, the automated game previews, the uh, the bracketology deserves, things like that. I just kind of built on over time. And, you know, when when your passion is, uh, you know, it, it is something like that, you kind of just keep working at it. And over the years, it's just kind of developed into what it is today. Wow, thank you. I, I just realized I'd never actually heard your full story about how you created it. I, I think I'd asked you different things about your process, but never heard the full story. So that was pretty awesome. Uh, I can relate to growing up and rushing like the, the day after Selection Sunday, getting the newspaper. It was the, the Knoxville News Sentinel here in Knoxville, which is now you know part of the USA Today family network, whatever, but in, in getting the paper and cutting out the bracket for the paper to like writing my picks and things like that. And like you said, getting little team capsules in there too. Cause even back then, like in the early two thousands, like there wasn't definitely not like to the extent we have now with the breakdowns on ESPN and all the websites and stuff that have breakdowns of teams. So yeah, I can relate to having that obsession uh, as a kid growing up and, and getting the paper and looking over the stuff and pouring over it and being just super excited for March. So I'm right there with you, Merrick on that one. So yeah, let's, let's dive into uh, some Tennessee talk here to some SEC talk and just, just NCAA at large here. So Looking at Tennessee right now, looking at Haslametrics.com, I may, hopefully, if I remember in editing, uh, go in here and flash this up on the screen to look at the, uh, uh, the web page, the homepage for Haslametrics and kind of show what I'm talking about here. But uh, Tennessee right now is slated their number 14 in your rankings. They're in as a three seed. They are, however, I think like the last number three seed on there technically. So I, I think this kind of... I answer I, I, beforehand. I sent you some questions over, and this kind of answers one of them about whether or not Tennessee is locked into the three seed. Obviously, I think if Tennessee does go one and done in the SEC tournament, they'll slip to a four seed because that'd be probably a bad loss to either South Carolina or Mississippi State. But I'm curious, you know, Tennessee right now in the three seed. You have uh, as of right now, this is before you know, the major conference tournament start. You have Villanova, Texas Tech, and Wisconsin as the other three seeds. And as a two seed, you have Kansas, Kentucky, Purdue, and Duke. Is there a way? Eric, where Tennessee could play themselves into a two seed. You know, if they go and win the SEC tournament, which they haven't done since 1979, so I'm not counting on that happening. 
But, you know, if they go and win the SEC tournament or even get to the finals and play a competitive game against, you know, that Auburn, for example, is there a chance that Tennessee gets into that two seed territory? And, you know, according to your your bracketology deserves in your mind and just in your opinion, are they going to like, is that all that needs to happen? Or are they going to need a, a Duke or Purdue or obviously they beat Kentucky and Kentucky won't make it to the finals? Or, so are they going to need some help, in other words, to get to a, a potential two seed, even if they win the SEC tournament or is winning the tournament, in your opinion, enough to kind of launch them into that two seed uh, discussion? My my guess is I, I, they feel like a three seed to me. I think they're going to remain there. I think because they're on the bottom half of that three line, the, the most likely movement is down, not up. Now, that's not to say that they could, you know, if they run the table and they win the SEC tournament, they're probably going to have, you know, a, a, a claim for that, for the overall, you know, one of the overall two seeds. But, um, um, but I, you know, I think the problem with it is that the committee, for the most part, based on the, the conversations that I've had with people who may be in that committee room, um, a lot of the seating is already done by the time t- Tennessee is actually going to have their first tip of the SEC tournament. They've mm-hmm. kind of slotted them. And I think they really look at the situation like, you know, these teams have played each other before. You know, they, the, the season is so long. These games are not going to make a whole lot of difference because everything is kind of set in stone already. So I think if Tennessee lost that opening game, they might be in danger of dropping to a four. If they run the table, maybe they could get there. The deserves, the bracketology deserves that you see on my website are not attempting to predict the committee. They're basically using the same kind of mentality the committee would use, but it uses my metrics and not the official metrics that are on the team sheets for the NCAA, uh, the NCAA selection committee. So you may see my deserves based if Tennessee ends up beating you know, Kentucky and Auburn. Yeah, that's going to really launch them, might launch them to the two line on my bracketology deserves. But like I said, I think the committee kind of makes their decision already by Thursday or Friday. So by the time Tennessee tips, I think they're already going to slot Tennessee. And what they typically do is they'll scrub the lines later on. They'll probably slot them there. And then they look at the results maybe a little bit later on, maybe Saturday and say, well, let's move them up one. Let's move them up two. Maybe they're the number 12 or 13 overall or something like that. And then if you, they do really well, they may move them up one or maybe move them up two. not a, not an entire C line necessarily, but you know, it within that seed itself. Um, I, I, in my opinion, I don't think Tennessee is going to get to that two line. I may be surprised, but based on the behavior that I've seen in the past from the committee, these big conference tournaments, don't really mean much for teams like Tennessee, Kentucky, Auburn, Alabama. They're already in the dance. They've kind of slotted them already. This is really for those teams on the outside looking in. And, you know, like I said, you you may get some scrubbing going on. I think the committee even mentioned that if you had like a Purdue at the bottom of the two line and a Wisconsin at the top of the three, they'd probably swap them because Wisconsin has a season sweep on Purdue. Um, a situation like that where they'll do that kind of scrubbing. But other than that, I really feel like Tennessee is a, as, as much of a three seed as a three seed you're going to find. I think they're kind of right there with Texas Tech um, as, as two three seeds. Not to say it's impossible that they can go down or, or climb up, but I just think that there's a high percentage they're both landing on the three line. That was some really good insight, Eric. Like I, That was some really good insight into the way the committee thinks because I've, I've not heard that before about at least me personally. Maybe I just haven't listened to the right people, but I've not heard about that before about the – the way they kind of have it basically more or less like with those top teams kind of slotted in already before we get really too deep into the, the uh, conference tournaments. I think it's interesting. Do, do you, we're not, this is, this is something I asked you beforehand, but do you kind of, do you agree with that, that reasoning? Do you agree with that logic that the committee has of kind of already having those teams slotted in? 
No, not necessarily. I do. I look at things a little bit differently and I, you know, it's, it's a little bit frustrating for me. And I, you know, every year I try to, you know, the bracketology deserves, I'd love to be able to predict this perfectly, but the, the fact of the matter is I'm using my metrics and they're using different metrics. And sometimes I look at the metrics that they're using, particularly the BPI and go, huh, what are, where, where are they, <laughs> how did, how do they land on this? And, but they chose the BPI for a reason, cough, cough, ESPN cough, you know, I mean, um, um, so they're going to use what they're going to use. And what I found with bracketologists is bracketologists, and I probably do this myself, they form their own narratives on teams based on what they see with their eyes. Um, and, and they argue in favor of those narratives until the cows come home. That's just the way they do it. And having an argument with a bracketologist is like arguing with a basketball official. You're always going to be wrong, you know, <laughs> compared to them. So I, it, it's frustrating because I can make arguments and people will always find some, well, look at this game and they beat this team. Okay, fine. I'm not going to convince you. It's, it's, it's a pointless argument. I guess that's what makes bracketology kind of fun for a lot of people. I think they like the different viewpoints and, you know, you have the bracket matrix where you have how many, a hundred plus different bracketologists mm-hmm. out there trying and they average them all out. It's kind of interesting, but um, no, it's, you know, I look at this and from, from a committee standpoint, um, I, I would include every game. I think every game matters. I think uh, if, if Tennessee beats a Kentucky and beats an Auburn back to back, that should count that those are big wins. Those are quadrant one, a wins. Why would you not count them? But from what I've gathered, the committee, largely has everything kind of slotted in place before that happens. And maybe they'll prove me wrong. I mean, what would happen if, you know, Tennessee wins those two games and ends up, you know, the number six overall seed and, you know, the, the second highest two seed um, I, it could happen. I'd be surprised, mm-hmm. but I, but I've seen things before where teams have done really well in a postseason power conference tournament. And then you look at it and go, they seeded them there, but I've seen it too many times. So it, it's almost like they seed them, before that tournament starts and then you might see him shift a little bit but it's it's really not that much okay yeah that, that's kind of the way i was leaning too so i was curious your thoughts on it but i, I with you like i i think having to slot it in like that is i wouldn't say silly but yeah I, I agree with you i think that they should be a little more flexible with their their i guess viewpoint here in the last week or so because uh, you're right like yeah. their quality wins and their their neutral site which has been to me, that that's going to be the interesting thing with the SEC tournament. We we may get to some of that in a second. Like the SEC, especially with the top four, if you want to include Alabama, two top five in the SEC this year, has been so home court dominated. Where the top four, especially I think combined, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Auburn had one loss at home this year. So, like it that that's been so home court dominated that the neutral site is going to be a big equalizer. That you know, I think those should count. You know pretty significantly especially this year when you're playing in tampa bay of all places which is no sec teams even are close to that so i don't know what for one what they're doing there but i, I think um, part of the i think part of the problem is that that selection show is right after these 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 championships and the yeah. committee would argue and they'd have a point in saying well if you're talking about a tennessee who's in the middle of the two line all of a sudden they win a big game and it bumps up to the one line we have certain rules where okay, we can't play in this particular pod. We can't match them up with a team they've played before. We can't match them up with a with a conference, someone else from your same conference, and and they it, it may cause problems. And that's going to be their argument, saying it's too last minute for us to make that switch. They basically create a a, a cutoff, and which in my opinion is Thursday or Friday, probably the end of the day Thursday. And my guess is by the time Tennessee tips. On Friday, they're already going to be slotted by the committee somewhere. And it's just going to be a mad, and, and I'm guessing it's going to be the three line. And I think if they lose their opening round game, maybe they fall to a four, but 
You know, I, it, it's it's a tough task to get him up to the two line. I just don't think they're going to land there. I think they're going to be a three. That's fair because I, I agree with you. I think from, from everything I've seen from Tennessee this year, but especially how they've kind of played the last month where they've, they've gotten better, in my opinion, and have found a little bit more of a groove. I, I agree with you. I think they're they're a, a solid three seed. But I, I think you can make an argument for a four. But I, I'm with you. Even if they win out in the SEC tournament, it would be tough to push them to a two, but I mean, I, me personally, with the orange colored glasses I'm going to wear right now, like I could see, I could make an argument for it, but I, I could also like take those glasses off. I could see an argument against it because you look at, you know, who a lot of the other two seeds are that are being projected, and I could see arguments for them just saying that hey, they're just better overall teams in Tennessee this year and more, have been more consistent. I'd say okay, you're right. Um, and and who from a four line would when you look at the four line, Providence, you're going to move Providence up, you're going to move Illinois up, you're going to move UCLA right. up. I don't know. I, I, I just think that Tennessee's got those teams beat. You know, again, if you have a team like a UCLA that wins the whole Pac-12 tournament and Tennessee fares poorly, they could land on the four line. Like I said, I think it's more likely that Tennessee would screw up and land on the four line than it is to climb. I think, I think they got to really score some big wins to get to the two line. And even then, it's questionable. Yeah, you'd need you'd likely need if that was the case, you'd need someone like a, a Duke or Purdue to lose in the their first game of their tournament. But even then, like you said, that that's not you'd be more likely to move up a maybe a Villanova or somebody into that two line rather than Tennessee. So yeah, it's I think you're right. I think three maybe where Tennessee slotted, which that's fine. You, you get some pretty interesting matchups as a three seed, and it's not a and you're still at the bottom part of the bracket, so you're not matched up with the one, you know, before you get to the Elite Eight. So I think that's that's uh I like that. I, th- I think three is fine with me. I- I'm fine with it. I think Vol fans would be the fine with it too. Um, but speaking of Tennessee, you know, we've just kind of talked a little bit about it. I was curious your kind of postseason outlook or forecast for Tennessee, in your opinion, looking at their analytical makeup. Uh, do they have the kind of makeup or, or the numbers and stuff for a team that can make a type of deep run? Um, because I-, I look at you know me personally watching them this year and also keeping up with the numbers on your site and on Kim Palm and, and different sites too. Team rankings is what I look at too. Uh, this team has been, especially the first two and a half months, and it's reflected on the uh, consist the, that all play percentages on Hazelmetrics here, very up and down. Uh, maybe it's a little, it's a little, I guess maybe exaggerated because it's broken down into the bars are by fives rather than like by tens or fifteens. But still, you you go from a preseason right outside the top fifteen to a team that within the first month had already dropped down to you know barely inside the top twenty five. But I'll again, if I remember, put this in editing. I'll go and show people here what I'm talking about. But you see on the graph, there's a lot of up and down, up and down for the first, you know, two and a half months. And by the time you get to late January, going back into February, there's a little couple dips here and there. But for the most part, it's kind of evened out a little bit, and it's kind of doing a little bit more of a just kind of a even keel thing for Tennessee's rankings, more so than it has at any point this season. So. All that to get to the point of me saying this, their consistency is ranked pretty low on on Hazometrics. Their momentum's not super high, but you look at their strength of schedule. They've had one of the toughest strength of schedules of the entire season. I I looked up data um, on Ken Palm and on, I think, sports reference as well, and looked back at like the last 20 years, or I think 20, 25 years of Tennessee basketball to see where this year's uh, strength of schedule rankings on both those sites, you know, compared to the last 20 years. And this is the toughest strength of schedule Tennessee has had since the, I think the 0102 team. It's like, this is, it's been a really tough team because I look at your, your, your bracketology deserves and also other sites, the top, you know, 16 teams on there, Tennessee played Arizona and beat Arizona. They played Auburn and beat Auburn. They played Kentucky and split that series. They played Villanova and lost them. They played Texas tech and lost them. And those are all teams like in that one, two and three seed category. So all that to get to this, 
Tennessee's not been great away from home either because looking at their rankings, they're 337th away from home. But again, that could be said for probably Auburn and, Ar- and, and Arkansas and Kentucky in the SEC. So I'm curious, just taking all that information, packaging it up, you know, you mentioned you're not as big into the predictive stuff as it is just kind of analyzing, but what is, what is your kind of analysis on Tennessee heading into, you know, here in postseason play? Yeah. Well, like that away from home, you talked about that's, you know, that, that is almost like a testament to how much of a home court advantage you have as well. So you, mm, okay. I always think of a team like a Rutgers or something like that. So a team that always performs really, really well on their home, it's going to make your, your away and your neutral court games look a lot worse. So sometimes that could be a little bit misleading. I always kind of say this with the metrics, I always take everything with the metrics with a little bit of a grain of salt, because there is always a story to tell. And it's a reason why I'm never a big supporter in ever getting rid of the eye test. Because, you know, the, the metrics can be manipulated. The, the metrics, you can cherry pick the metrics. Um, and there's always a story. So I always say that the metrics are always kind of like a evidence of the crime scene. It's not an open and shut case. You got to use, mm-hmm. you got to have a judge and jury using your eyes. That's so I always kind of put it that way. But from a standpoint of um, a perspective of the outlook for, for Tennessee, I always, um, in my opinion, the teams that do the best in the postseason really kind of have four things. Um, you want to have upperclassmen leadership. You want to have depth, you want to have shooting ability, and you want to have balance. And if you look at this for, for Tennessee, if you're looking at the upperclassmen leadership, you have a mixture in there. You have uh, Vescovy, of James Fulkerson, uh, Plopsic, um, all those guys have the experience. So that's, you know, you, have, you mix in some younger guys as well, but it's, it's, it's adequate. Um, from a depth standpoint, I think you could probably argue that they're nine deep right now with Tennessee. Um, with the loss of Kamwa, I think he probably went 10 deep before that. Definitely you're fine there. If you're looking at shooting ability, I always kind of say that's kind of a question mark. I look at three-point percentage and adjusted three-point percentage. They're 64th in the country. That's, mm-hmm. that's good. It's good. Not necessarily elite. And I know that uh, Vescovy shooting 40%. I think uh, a couple guys are in the 35 range. But, you know, it's, 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 I wouldn't say it's great, but it's really, really good. Um, so they're fine. And then balance, I go maybe a little bit more of a question mark there as well. You know, the defense is great. I have them rated third in defensive efficiency. Offensive efficiency is 51st. Uh, 51st. And, you know, I, I think, you know, I, I think 51st isn't that bad. It's not, I've seen it more egregious imbalances. Definitely mm-hmm. there are more egregious ones out there, but I always make the argument that, you know, your D can be as great as ever. At some point, there are going to be games when you got to put the ball in the hole as well. And that's, um, it, it, it goes both ways. There's sometimes great offenses who at some point, those shots aren't going to go down. You got to play some defense as well. And, you know, a team I think of in that situation was Ohio state last year and Ohio state was really great offensively, but defensively they were atrocious and they let, what happened to them? They got beaten the first round by, by oral Roberts. And I'll give you a little hint this year. They're worse. They're worse defensively and much worse. Wow. Ohio State is so keep that in mind. Defensively, they're terrible. They're I mean I thought they were bad last year. They're worse this year. But um, <laughs> one of the things about Tennessee though is, is we talked about consistency and yeah, um, one of the, the problems with Tennessee being 318th in consistency is that means you kind of can jump all over the board. Um, and and when you're looking at consistency, you're not just looking at the game result. I always tell people and say you can if a game projection is Tennessee supposed to win 60 to 55. And they win 90 to 85. The margin is still five, but the, the inconsistency is still there because they scored far more than expected. They gave up far more than expected. Now, pace can play a part in that. You're, you still have to look at the pace and break down the efficiency. Um, but even when you do that, you know, um, Tennessee has that 
318th ranking. It's not as bad as North Carolina or Villanova or Rutgers or Iowa. Um, it's kind of funny that, you know, that those a couple teams show up there because you notice that North Carolina and Villanova show up there who played Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you kind of wonder if maybe, again, you got to look into the, the metrics a little bit more. Did teams like that who are very, very um, inconsistent, did they pull Tennessee down with them to a certain degree? I think it probably plays a little bit of a part. I think there's still some inconsistency there with Tennessee. But um, I, have, I have a little bit of a, a problem trusting teams that are inconsistent because they can bring it one day. And I'm thinking the team that jumps to mind is North Carolina. Yep. When North Carolina brings it, they can play with anybody. But you've seen so many games that are head scratchers and like, what is going on with this team? I mean, they lost a pit for Christ's sake. I mean, that's, that should tell you something. And Pitt's terrible. You, you saw what, what happened with Pitt today with uh, uh, Boston College. They lost by, what, 24 in the ACC tournament. How that team ever beat North Carolina is a mystery to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And man, just hearing you talk about this stuff, I had so many questions popped in my mind. I, I could sit here and talk with you for hours about analytics stuff, <laughs> Eric, but I know you have things to get to do. And also, I don't think our, our listeners want to sit there for uh, two or three hours and just listen to us talk about that. So I, I appreciate that. I appreciate the breakdown of the consistency and how that can, you know, again, I, I agree with you. I, as much as I love numbers and analytics and stuff, I agree with you, like they can be skewed, and that, which is why I also agree with you in the fact that I don't think the committee should ever fully do away with eye test. I think you, you can maybe, you know, devalue it some, but I think you should always have that kind of human element slash, you know, eye test, whatever you want to call it in there for selections and stuff, because you're right. Like sometimes the analytics can be misleading. Sometimes they can be, you know, um, they can be skewed. They can be purposely, you know, manipulated on, for different things as well. So I, I agree with you. I think that while, sometimes you look at the analytics and go, well, this team doesn't, you know, they should, they have no business doing this, they have the business doing that. And then they go out in the court and prove you wrong. It's because, you know, again, you may not, it may not, they may not tell the whole story. They tell a lot of the story and I like them. And I think they're a great foundation to kind of, you know, base arguments and things on, but that's why they go play the games, man. Like that's what you talk about. You know, that's why betting exists. That's why, you know, just, just because you have somebody beat on paper doesn't mean you beat them on the court. So um, yeah, and yeah, inju- and injuries happen. That that's yeah. a big part of it. And, and I don't I don't know if you remember back what was it late nineties with Kenyon Martin with with Cincinnati. Mm. He was he was the heart and soul of that team. I mean, think of it now with uh, a guy like uh, Keegan Murray with Iowa, Johnny Davis uh, mm. with Wisconsin. Any of these guys go down with a major injury, it completely changes the outlook of these teams. Cincinnati it was a big one back then, and and they were going to be a number one seed. They lost Kenyon Martin to like a broken leg or something like that. And the committee actually stashed him as a two despite having a resume of a one just because they looked at it and said, we can't with a straight face say that Cincinnati is a one anymore. They're just yep. not. And, and a lot of people would say, well, th- but they earned it. They, re- they they should be rewarded for their resume. But you're like, but there's the other side of the coin where people are going to say, yeah, but if you're an eight, nine, who gets to face that number one seed, you have far more of an advantage over every other eight, nine in that bracket. So you got to, it's, it's a double-edged sword. You're never going to win this argument. The committee is going to do what they're going to do. And they're going to shrug and go, whatever. And, I guess I'm okay with it. <laughs> hey, it's <sports> just <laughs> subjective. You mean like like, I said, like right. this is this, this is what's great about it. you can make yeah. arguments for for both sides on, on a lot of different things. Um, so looking kind of a little bit broader here and you know about the SEC, but also I guess t- kind of still talking about Tennessee here uh, a little bit just because we're talking SEC. Uh, looking at right now again on your on your deserves right now, you have Auburn as the last number one seed. You have Kentucky as a you know high, the second number two seed. And I, I've seen a lot of different things have. 
Auburn as a as a you know high high two seed, a low one seed, and, and Kentucky as maybe even the number one overall two seed, or however you want to word that, the number five team I guess in the in the rankings. Um, what are in your in your estimation like? What are the odds that the SEC is able to get actually two number one seeds? Would it would it come down to just having Auburn and Kentucky play in that title game, or would you have to have you know a little bit of help? Would you have to have maybe like a you know Arizona not win their tournament, a Baylor lose, or it, maybe a Kansas lose early? It, would it would it be just as simple as okay if Auburn and Kentucky both make it to the title? And again, I know this goes back to the conversation we had earlier about the the committee cutting things off on a Thursday night, but in, in just your opinion you know, getting those two teams in the finals and it being a competitive game and it being, you know, coming down to the last minute, in your opinion, should that be enough to elevate maybe both those teams to number one seed? Because there was, a, there was a time this year, I think in mid-February, where a lot of bracketologists and stuff, and like, you know, thinking of Joe Donardi, for example, is that this, you know, Tennessee was on ESPN a couple of times, seeing Auburn and Kentucky both slotted as number one seeds. So is there even a chance that could happen? Because I think it's, I think personally, it's a very low chance, um, I think there's a, maybe a tiny chance it happens. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to agree with you. I don't see it. I think, um, you know, right now you have Auburn at the bottom of the one seeds. You have Kentucky largely in the top half of the twos. In my opinion, you know, Gonzaga and Baylor and even Arizona seem really locked in. I, did, I, I mean, maybe those guys completely blow up in the tournament, something like Arizona. Especially I, I'd be they stunned. Lose. I, I mean, I, I don't see it, but, you know, I, I think if Arizona wins one game, they're a one seed. I think if Baylor wins one, I mean, even Baylor probably doesn't even have to win one game, to be honest with you. Same thing with Gonzaga. Well, obviously, Gonzaga, I mean, it's, it doesn't matter at this point for Gonzaga. They're already in the championship tonight. So so they're locked in on the one line. There's no way that they're coming off that one line. Um, and I think if Baylor and Arizona are, are probably there too. So at that point, if you have those three teams locked in, they're only leaving room for one more. And I mean, the only other way you might be able to pull it off, say like a, um, I, I don't, I don't know. I was going to say if a big, another big 12 team knocked off Baylor early, but even then I don't think it's possible. I think, um, the, the, the I guess the, the better question would be, is there a possibility that zero SEC teams get on the one yeah. line? And that's a possibility. What happens if Kansas runs the table in the big 12 tournaments and Auburn and Kentucky don't perform all that well? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, even a you know maybe even a Duke could they possibly steal that? I don't I I don't think uh, they'd get up that high. I think it's going to be um, Kansas and Kentucky are probably on the outside looking in right now with Gonzaga, Baylor, Arizona, and Auburn on the inside. I think you're probably looking at six teams in the running for that number one seed. Um, but I, my guess is, if I had to gun to my head, I would probably say it's going to be one one SEC team. It's going to be either Auburn and it's or it's going to be Kentucky probably with that last number one seed maybe maybe the third number one seed if if arizona for whatever reason doesn't get any love from the committee okay i like that and, and i'd agree with that. i think there's a, a better chance like a, a much better chance honestly of there being no number one sec seed yeah. as opposed to two so I, i'd agree with you on that one um looking at like just the sec in general this year i think i know the answer to this question i think i think i at least know the answer to one of these questions I'm curious, based off of if I'm, you know, I don't expect you to remember every one through 353 of your or 358 of your your rankings, you know, before the season began. But from what you can remember of kind of like preseason projections on on teams and what your thoughts were on some of the SEC teams, who, according to your analytics or just even your opinion and you know just your specific opinion, which SEC team was 
this season the most disappointing in, in terms of, you know, they're projected to go high. They're projected to be much better than they were, and they have they dropped off and are nowhere near what they, you know, kind of expected. And then what in your who in your opinion has been kind of the biggest surprise in, in a positive aspect of a team that, you know, weren't expecting to hold of and now suddenly they're, you know, they they've played a lot better above their their, I guess, maybe preseason projection and your analytics. Well, as luck would have it, I actually was able to perform a query and pull out the comparison of the, the preseason rankings and the nice. current day rankings. So um, I can tell you the most disappointing team is, I mean, the two most disappointing teams are very, very disappointing teams. The first one was Missouri. Uh, Missouri came into the season in our preseason ba- baselines ranked 83rd in the country. They're currently 161st, a drop of 78 spots. Um, again, the 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 preseason baselines take a lot of factors into play and part of it is looking at starting with last year's data and then looking at three years of prestige as well and then kind of looking at who's coming in i'm taking in factors like transfers and in and, and incoming um freshmen and how many returning minutes returning players coaching changes things like that all come into play um so sometimes you see a team where you, you kind of look and say the bottom might fall out, but it's the, the analytics are going to be a little bit slow to allow it to happen because you're like, how far can they truly fall in one year? Well, Missouri fell pretty far in one year. They fell 78 <laughs> spots from the start of the year. The other one is not a big surprise either. That's Georgia. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty sad, actually, considering their preseason baseline was 140. I was going to say, that's pretty bad when they were, <laughs> I already expected them to be the worst in the SEC and that they, they even underperformed that. Wow. Yeah, they, they came into the season ranked dead last in the SEC at number 140. They're 193 right now, so they fell 53 spots. Um, flip uh, flip the coin, the team that actually jumped the most from the preseason was actually Texas A&M. Hmm. And Texas A&M had a few tough years. They came into the season ranked 123rd. They're currently 64th, a rise of 59 spots. Um, they were in the last three years coming into this season, they were 99th, 103rd, and 157th at the end of the last three seasons. This is their first 21, 21 seasons since 17, 18. So they were a rise of 59. The other one is not a huge surprise. It's Auburn. Auburn came in the season. A lot of people didn't expect Auburn to do what they were doing. They thought they were a good team. They didn't think they were this good. They came in the season ranked number 41 for me. They're currently number 11, a rise of 30 spots in the year or so. Yeah, Texas A&M and Auburn are probably are the top two that are the I wouldn't say biggest surprises, just the uh, pleasant surprises of of the SEC. So I was wrong about the two worst, but I, I was right about Auburn being one of the most the biggest positive surprises because I, I remember looking recently, I can't remember why, but looking recently at their their profile on your site and seeing that they were in the 40s at the beginning of the year, I was like, well, they way way overperformed because I forgot that like you're right, like we. They did not have a great year last year, and they lost uh, you know a couple of key pieces there. And while they added Jabari Smith and Walker Kessler, people didn't know you know what to expect from Walker Kessler because it's not like he he didn't play a ton at UNC. Um, so you thought okay he he'll be probably good, but I didn't expect you know him to go be a, a get a bunch of double doubles and triple double yeah, blocks, a defensive juggernaut. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think we all expected Jabari Smith to be really good, but not you know to the level that he was. And then also for them to, that kind of pick up the slack for a lot of the other players on Auburn's team and kind of raise you know. The, the whole like the rate all the boats raising the, the whatever high tide raises for all all ships like that's kind of what they did for auburn there so i think you're right and for whatever reason like it did not dawn on me that until you just said it that texas a&m had a 21 season this year until just now <laughs> like it, I, I knew they had improved as the year went along but man i just didn't realize they went 20 and 11 in the, the regular season wow there's some bracketologists who kind of have them and just i mean it's a real long shot of being in the conversation i don't think they have enough to get there but I mean, credit to Buzz Williams. It's a team that it's really struggled for a lot of years and, and kind of turned it around this year. I mean, to be ranked in the top 65 
considering that team, how bad that team was, I want to say two years ago, they were like number 275 for me at one point. They were hideously atrocious two years ago, early in the season. Then they kind of got their act together, but they've never done as well as they have that, that they're doing right now um, since, like I said, 2017, 18. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, they might have a bright future ahead of them. Yeah, they were one of the five SEC teams to finish the year tied at nine and nine in, in the SEC. So that kind of that even further solidified things that my, my co-host and I, Gene, have talked about in this podcast this year, that the SEC overall has gotten like depth wise is better than it has been, especially in many, many years past. But it really is. There's just a huge separation between the top four and the rest. Like the, I, I would be I would be absolutely stunned if we don't have chalk going into the SEC tournament semifinals on on Saturday where it's, you know, Auburn, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas. Like if, if one of those other teams upsets one of those other two, I, I would be pretty floored, honestly, because there's just such been such a discrepancy between uh, the top four and the rest of the SEC. So um, that does kind of lead into the next point. I, I kind of wanted to talk to you about about the SEC is 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 this, you know, from what you can remember, you've been how long you've been doing this, like having the actual Hazelmetric stuff set up? I think I, I, the the 2014-15 season was the first year I did it. Okay. So sometime it was in February of 2015, I think, is when I kind of rolled it out. Okay, so for the last seven years, six, seven years or so. So in, in that estimation, like from what you can remember, the last six, seven years, basically last half decade, in your in your mind, is this kind of the strongest that the SEC has been poised for multiple teams to have at NCAA tournament runs? Because obviously you look back at the year where you know, Auburn made a Final Four run, and people weren't expecting that. But you, you look at that, and that was where they played Kentucky in the Elite Eight. You had two teams went deep. You had Tennessee make a Sweet 16 re- recently. You had Arkansas and Auburn both make Sweet 16 runs and and do well. But to me, I look at Auburn, Kentucky, and Tennessee especially, and, and I'll throw in Arkansas in there too, as all four capable of getting to that second weekend and possibly further. I, I'm the least believer in Arkansas of those four just because – They've not impressed me. I mean, I know they came back and made it a game against Tennessee at home in Knoxville, but that I think that was also a lot to do with Tennessee kind of almost throwing that game away. Um, but I, I think that, to me, you have at least three teams that are very much capable of getting to that second weekend. And again, maybe going further, especially in, in my opinion, in Kentucky's case with the way they've been playing lately. But is this kind of the best you've seen the SEC poised for some deep runs? Because even the teams that are on the bubble, I, mean, I, I look at your – Bracketology deserves, and it was uh, you obviously have Tennessee, Auburn, and Kentucky all up there in that top three seed territory. And then you go a little bit further, you have Arkansas as a, as, as a five, and the bracket deserves Alabama as a six, LSU as a six, and then I think that is it in terms of teams that are actually you know you have solidly in, but you have Kentucky or excuse me, you have Florida as a team that is one of the the first, I guess actually the fifth team out. You have again you have A and M kind of right there with them too, so you have other teams that could sneak in possibly. I don't think they will, but we'll see. Um, but uh, that's that's a good solid group of teams there. That's what, I mean, did I say six teams, seven teams, six teams in the SEC that make it in? And I think there's a good chance that it, I don't I don't know that many of them will be one and done. If I had to guess, LSU's a, a one and done candidate just because they've been all over the place this year. And now with this Will Wade stuff that came out not too long before you and I were starting to record, like that just seemed like a big mess over there again. Um, so my, my question is, does is this... Does it seem like the SEC is poised to have a, a few deep tournament runs this year? On paper, they are. You know, the tournament is always a, a crazy place, as we saw yeah. with the Pac-12 last year. It's I'm, I'm, But we always got to go on paper. And looking on paper, um, you know, one of the things I do is I like to come up with the conference rankings. And what I kind of do, and people are like, they are they argue, like, how you want to do conference rankings. Well, what I try to do is I take my own rankings. I take the for each conference. I take the average ranking in the top five. I take the average ranking in the middle five, and I take the average ranking in the bottom five. 
And then I take those three and I average those. And that's how I get to a conference ranking. I actually released this in a tweet earlier today. And if you look at the SEC right now, they're, they're third overall. They were actually were fourth, but they jumped in the third. They passed the Big East. Um, but they're so, as you mentioned, they're so top heavy and bottom heavy. And so if you look at the top five, and like I said, you break it down to top and middle and bottom. If you look at the top five, the average ranking of the top five, SEC is number one. Mm-hmm. If, you look at, if you look at the middle five, they're number three. And if you look at the bottom five, they're number four. So they, you know, it shows you how bad they have the worst of the worst and the best of the best. They're very, they're, they're very bipolar in that way. Um, and like you said, you know, there's five teams that are in my top 20. Um, there's six of them in my top 30. And then if you include Mississippi state and Florida, there, there's eight of them in my top 50 um, on paper. Yeah. Very, very, very strong. Um, I look at this and this is probably the strongest SEC group that I've seen, especially when you look at that top five, it's the best top five of any conference in the country based on my analytics. Um, so yeah, I would definitely not be surprised to see any of these teams go quite a distance. I, I might even disagree with you on Arkansas. Arkansas is a weird <laughs> team. They, and I've seen it now. And we talked about the charts that, um, that I put on my website about their ranking and, both last year and this year, Arkansas started just just tanked early on. And I even wrote a tweet back when they had that Texas A&M loss. I think it was in January. And I said, boy, the must bus needs an overhaul. And it was like, just like last year, it was like must flipped a switch. And all of a sudden they took off. And you can see the charts from this year and last year for Arkansas, where they just go skyrocket right in the middle of January. And I look wow. at what they did last year. They got through. Then I, they ended up beating Texas Tech last year, I think. And 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 I think they got to the Sweet 16. I don't know if they ended. Up, I forgot who they ended up losing to in the Sweet 16 or the Elite Eight. But yeah. I could definitely see Arkansas being a second weekend team again. No, I mean, actually, you may have swayed me. I'm looking at. You're absolutely right. Like I'm looking at the chart now. They were down uh, in the maybe even the 80s on. I think like in, in mid January, they're down the 80s, and then they, like you said, they had a really big win skyrocketed and now they're up and you know and it just continued to kind of climb they didn't have too many dips since then and have climbed all the way up to a uh where are they right now on the all play they are 17th so the top 20 team so yeah they, they've, they've climbed up a ton from the beginning of the year and that was a team that you had you know in your projections as a top 25 you know preseason kind of analytic analytic team that again you're right like last year i, I remember this happening last year too we thought well you know they had a really weak non-conference schedule they get it SEC play and we're like, okay, well, let's see what they do. They struggled. And then they, again, and I think January or, or early February last year turned on a switch and all of a sudden we're playing some of the best ball of anybody in the SEC. So this is the second. And I think it's partially because you look at last year and this year, both what's been the consent, what's been the, the consistence for Arkansas, both those years, a lot of transfers and a lot of new faces on the team. And, and that's takes a little bit to mesh. I mean, same thing with Tennessee this year. Like they had, you know, a new a transfer with Justin Powell, but they also had a lot of new guys, as freshmen come in, a lot of guys who left from last year took a while to mesh. That's why I think, you know, they're playing better now, but they're still not playing super consistent, but they are playing better now than they were, you know, a month and a half ago. But yeah, you're right. Arkansas, maybe, maybe I'm underestimating them a little bit. They're, they're kind of the new Kentucky, you know, in the last, last few years, hmm. I remember not necessarily this year, but in previous years, you've seen Calipari's teams really just not do playing very, very good basketball in, in um, uh, November and December. And I think this year was kind of a little bit return to normal for Kentucky. They were a little bit more consistent. But in past years, man, I've seen some really, really terrible basketball off Kentucky. Maybe Musselman is the new Kentucky now, because we've seen two years in a row where Arkansas inexplicably just kind of tanked for those first few months. And then all of a sudden the SEC schedule starts and they just kind of get their act together. So 
I, I, it would be a question. I, if I ever had a chance to interview a Musselman, I would probably show him those two things and say, can you explain this? What, <laughs> like, what's going on here? What, what, what switch do you have that you flip at, at some arbitrary time that changes this? And because now granted it is only two seasons, so it's not a big right. sample size, but it is still something that's very noticeable. It's that old phrase of, if I, if I had a nickel for every time this happened, I'd have two. It's weird that, I, it's weird <laughs> yeah. that I'd have two of these. Not, not, that's not money, but it's weird that I'd have right. two. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, I think kind of the, the last thing here is a very even broader than even just looking at the SEC, but looking at definitely kind of NCAA as, as a whole. Again, we don't have, you know, the brackets aren't set. But that's why I want to bring you on here because I think, you know, it, the best best time to have Eric Haslam on is in February and early March when there's a lot up in the air and we can talk about all this analytics stuff. And I do think it's actually probably good to have you on again, like once everything's set, uh, just because it's cool to look look back and say, okay, where, where are the analytics right here? Where, where do the analytics kind of get this right? And where, where did the committee get it wrong? Or just different things like that. But for those, we're about, a, I guess, this time next week when people are listening to this, we'll have had a lot of brackets filled out already. We'll be getting ready probably for the, I guess, the play-in games and getting ready for the first round. So in your, you know, for your experience of, as we both just talked about, we both have loved college basketball for decades and have, you know, been big on the NCAA tournament at March Madness for most of our lives. What are some, in your experience with dealing with analytics and stuff and seeing your own trials and tribulations with picking the brackets and stuff, what are, what are some, what's some advice you would give uh, people who maybe, you know, fall in love with certain numbers or, or things that maybe they shouldn't fall in love with? What, what's some advice you would give to our fellow, uh, I guess, our fellow amateur bracketologists out there who like to fancy themselves as experts when it comes uh, to pick them time? Well, I would say, first of all, don't chase every upset. If you're in some sort of bracket competition, the people who are going to probably go with a lot of chalk are probably still going to do pretty well. I mean, that's the thing. People are going to try to say, well, I nailed this 14 over a three. Great. How far did they go? And, you know, you may have gotten that one, but the money is down the line. So don't chase every upset. You're going to get some 12s over fives. You're going to get some 11s over sixes. But I wouldn't go chasing the, the Oral Roberts games over Ohio State last year. Most people aren't going to get that right. And for every Oral Roberts, there's probably a dozen more that didn't win that game. So keep that in mind. Don't chase those upsets. Um, I, I personally, I've mentioned this before, don't, I don't necessarily trust inconsistent teams long term. If you're a team that is very up and down based on their results, I'm thinking of a team like Villanova. I, I've seen some really up and down results during the year. I don't know how much I'm going to trust Villanova for a team, especially teams like Iowa, maybe, or even in North Carolina. We talked about inconsistency is something I just don't go all in on North Carolina because you've seen it too many times where the, the bottom just falls out. They don't show up. And so I have a hard time trusting those teams. Um, I would say look for higher seeds. Those, if you're going to pick a 12 or even a 13, look for, um, those those favored teams that have the big weakness. I talked about Ohio State last year. Look at their offensive and defensive efficiency. If you're seeing a team with a big imbalance and all of a sudden they're, one of their efficiencies is like Ohio State's right now, like 110th or something like that, that is a glaring weakness. That's a team that is ripe for upset. I would keep an eye on that. And then the last thing I would say is, and this is kind of an interesting little thing, tidbit is, I would say if you're going to pick your final four, pick two number ones, Pick a number two or a number three, and then pick someone else. And and I'm, I'm, I'm if you want to, if you say, well, why would you say that? Let's take a look at last year. Last year you had Gonzaga and Baylor, both number one seeds. You had Houston as a two, and you had UCLA, the playing team, as an eleven. Go back 2019, Virginia and Michigan State. Granted, Michigan State was a two, but Texas Tech was a three. Auburn was a five. You're starting to see a pattern here. Mm-hmm. 2018. 
Kansas and Villanova, ones. Michigan, three. Loyola, Chicago, 11. 2017, North Carolina, Gonzaga, ones. Oregon, three. South Carolina, seven. So I would, based on the pattern that I see, I think the odds are, and I've looked at this years ago, and you should probably pick two number ones to go to the final four. That's probably going to happen. Two are going to lose. And then who are they going to get beat by? You're probably going to get a team like a two or a three who's going to get there as well. And then the last one is kind of a crapshoot. Honestly, I, I mean, look at UCLA last year. What, I, I don't know why anybody would pick UCLA last year. UCLA <laughs> lost their three, their last three regular season games, lost their first Pac-12 tournament game to Oregon State, mm-hmm. and then creeped back into the tournament, was down 11 points at the half to Michigan State, had to go to overtime to win that game, and then they somehow, oh, we're a Final Four team now. I mean, it's, that's the frustrating thing. Um, and I think of a team like UCLA, I think a team, especially in 2017, South Carolina. So oh, I'm like, yeah. oh, my God. If someone said back then, oh, I'm going to pick South Carolina to go to the Final Four, I would have laughed you out of the room. I'm like, <laughs> come on. Yeah, all right. They're going to the Final Four. But that's always how it happens. And, and I and I wish I, there was a trick to determining who that fourth team is, but I haven't figured it out yet. I just know that every year there's usually one big surprise in that Final Four. That's a very good point. Like I, I didn't realize it had been that consistent over the last five, six years, whereas two, basically two number ones, a two or three, and then a, a random five or worse seed that made it in there as well. That's that's interesting. Um, and, and to your point about uh, South Carolina and and Frank Martin's really, give, I got to give him credit. Like th- this team this year has has gotten better uh, in the last you know, few weeks and have been actually playing better than I expected them to over the last few weeks. But he's uh, been riding that Final Four run for a while now at, at South Carolina because that year that when they went to the final four, they finished 26 and 11. And, you know, they actually, they were pretty good that year. They went 12 and six in the SEC that year that, yeah, there wasn't a, a horrible team and they were ranked at some point in that year too. Um, but then you look at the next year, 17, 16, 16, and 16, 18 and 13, six and 15, now 18 and 12. Like they, they have a chance to get to 20 wins, I guess this year, but I, it'll be in the NIT because I don't expect them to, you know, they might win a game in the SEC, but I, I feel like if they play Tennessee, which, which would be who they'd play, I don't see them beating Tennessee. Tennessee and, and Rick Barnes have had really consistent consistent success over Frank Martin, South Carolina. So I don't th- see that happening. And I don't see them making the NCAA tournament based off their, their resume. So it'd be in the NIT, but I mean, he's he's been riding. Kudos to Frank Martin. He's he's not a bad coach. He just, he's been riding that Final Four run for uh, several years now. <laughs> not for that. He'd been fired a couple years ago. Same thing with Shaka Smart. Shaka yep. Smart rolled that VCU run. What did he do at Texas? Couldn't win a tournament game. And now they're, Talking about the, I'm, I'm not sure I'd pick Marquette in this game. I just, you know, I, I, I could say the same thing. I'm a, I'm a Wisconsin guy. Dick Bennett, Dick Bennett made a run to the Final Four in that one year in 2000. What was his record outside of that as a coach in the Division One? I? I think he was one in seven in the NCAA tournament. If you take out that one year where he went to the Final Four, and so I always kind of remind people of that mainly because I'm an up tempo kind of guy and I'm not a big defensive. I'm, I'm much more of a loyal to Marymount kind of offense less so a Virginia defense. I'm not that kind of guy. So when Dick Bennett was coaching here at Wisconsin, it was brutal for me to watch. And when I saw them go to the final four, I went, Oh God. <laughs> so much more prefer the great guard style than I do the, uh, the, the Dick Bennett style. It's, it's still not exciting, but it's comparatively speaking, it's a lot better. Yeah, no, I, I get what you're saying. Um, Eric, thank you so much again, man, for coming on here. Again, I mentioned at the top of the show, I'll have a link to his website in the description of both YouTube and the podcast. But Eric, you know, plug your stuff. Let everybody know where they can find you. I, I don't even know if I mentioned your Twitter handle. So uh, definitely let people know where they can find you and, and to check out the website stuff. 
Yeah, my spiel I usually give is if you guys are looking for my ratings, my rankings, my projections, my bracketology, I'm out there at Haslametrics.com. Otherwise, if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm out there going hashtag analytically final at, at Haslametrics is my handle out there. Yeah, and check out his pinned tweet. He tweeted it like a year ago. It's just a little cheat sheet about the analytical final stuff, which I always find, I always find very interesting. And I thought it was interesting too in that thread you and someone asked you had you ever had games, you know, in your time doing this that have gone analytically final where the the projected loser actually comes back and wins it. And it's happened. It's very, very rare, obviously, as as you might expect, but it has happened. So I think that's uh that's interesting to note too. It, it happened twice since I started. Once was that NCAA tournament game between Northern Iowa and Texas A&M, and the other one was the year later in the pit when uh, Nevada went unconscious from three-point land and overcame like a 20-point deficit against New Mexico and won that game. And so it has not happened in, I want to say, over, maybe over five years now. Wow. So it's been a bit. It's been a little bit. We're maybe with, with the way this year's been going, we're due for it, I think, Eric. <laughs> Sometime in the tournament, we'll see. Well, Eric, thank you so much again for coming on. And again, thank you for all of you who have been listening at home, at the gym, your car ride, wherever you are, or if you're watching the YouTube video. Thank you so much for that as well. Again, subscribe to the channel while you're here too. Give this video a like and share it around and subscribe to our podcast. Share this with any Vol fans you know, any SEC basketball fans. I'm sure you know this is more of a, obviously we talked about Tennessee, but this is also one you can kind of get someone interested in to hear about the SEC. Just kind of hear about, you know, kind of the behind the curtain stuff about NCAA tournament stuff as well. And just some analytical talk too. So if you're just a college basketball junkie, I think you'll enjoy this episode. So thank you, Eric. Thank you to all our listeners out there and signing off for Eric. I'm Nathaniel. And this has been another episode of the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Vol Basketball Fever Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss a new episode. Subscribe to our YouTube channel for more video content and follow us on Twitter and Facebook as well. Thank you, Vol fans.